Welcome to Sidebar, the podcast about law, politics, and society. We're your hosts. I'm Brianne Schuster. And I'm Joshua Turnham. Last episode, we started a conversation about the Second Amendment and gun control. I had so much to say that we decided to split it into two parts. So this is part two, where we're going to talk about 20th century Supreme Court cases and delve into various arguments in the gun control debate. But first, what legal news caught your attention recently, Brianne? Well, this week I thought the news or kind of coverage surrounding the Democratic National Committee and the Bernie Sanders kind of debacle caught my eye. Oh, yes. Yes. um, It's my understanding. I mean, it seems pretty clear that the Democratic National Committee or the DNC has been huge supporters of Hillary. And it seems like they're kind of doing anything that they can to ensure that her she's the candidate for the party. Um, I know one of their, I think it's their co-president or one of their co-chairs is also one of her campaign chairs. Um, There's been, you know, conversation that she, or they've structured the debates to be very limited amount of debates. And then they're always at really inconvenient times. Right. Um, Yeah. I think I've only watched the first one. Yeah. I watched the latest one this Saturday, but it just was by chance that, um, you know, I was flying home for the holidays. And so I was, we were all kind of tired, but normally on a Saturday night at eight or 9 PM, most people aren't tuning in to watch the debate. Right. Um, and so then this is just kind of the latest, uh, event in, in the controversy with Bernie Sanders and the DNC. And my understanding is that they were, the Sanders campaign had accessed some of Clinton's voter data. Um, It's unclear whether they, they claim or whoever did it um, was actually fired from the campaign already and like pretty immediately. But my understanding is what they're claiming is that they did it um, to see how bad apparently there was a breach um and security uh in the voter database and the sanders campaign had told the dnc about this multiple times i think three or four times before this incident and they did nothing to fix it and so the sanders campaign person um who was kind of tasked with you know doing the database and analysis um had gathered some of Hillary's or downloaded some of her data allegedly to see how bad the breach would be for what people could access on the other side of Sanders data. Um, And in retaliation, the DNC effectively denied his access to his own data, I think for three or four days. Um, And last Friday, I know they had at least threatened lawsuit. I don't know what's become of that. Um, I know that they've since reinstated his access but people are pretty upset about it yeah i i thought they actually had filed a lawsuit against the dnc because of that yeah i thought i think they did too um and so i just i don't know now that they have reinstated i haven't read the complaint or anything so i'm not sure if it's yeah neither have i just about the voter data breach or the um the voter data access or if it's about other incidences as well okay yeah i mean i have read two different versions of the story one is that at least one staffer, maybe two, accessed the data while the firewall was down due to this glitch mm-hmm. and that they downloaded the data and all this stuff. And then I yeah. heard this other side of the story from the Sanders campaign that no no one downloaded the data. Yes, it was accessed, but not purposely. There were no nefarious intentions. Right, nothing done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know 
what all the data contains or how you could use it against the Clinton campaign if they had access to it. But I mean, still. I yeah, I think the main thing, my understanding is that it wouldn't really be, you couldn't really use it against the Clinton campaign. You would just, you know, have access to research that they've done is kind of my, yeah right? So it would be like a timing thing right. um, that, you know, you wouldn't have to get that information. But it also seems like you probably already have a lot of it. Yeah. So I kind of agree. I think regardless of whether, and it, I mean, I, I, with reading, I kind of am with you, I've read two sides of how bad or egregious the download or the access was but i think either way um even people i think there was the the former president of the dnc or i don't remember his exact title but even he kind of came out and said that regardless of what they actually did with the data it was still a way over the top punishment right um to deny his access yeah yeah i, I had heard that as well and I guess I've actually read that a number of top Democrats have said that that's not an appropriate response for the DNC. Yeah. And a lot of people are upset with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Yes. I think that's the correct name. Yeah, I think so. But she is the current head of DC of the DNC. And I think that there are other issues with her being at the head of the DNC. Yeah. So this is just another problem that has happened on her under her watch. Right. But I know other top Democrats have said, you know, you should not have done this, restricted their access, even if they did violate their internal rules of accessing data, that that was not an appropriate response. Exactly. Exactly. So something interesting. We'll see what comes out of it. Right. Well, my news story is actually gun control related. Oh, wonderful. This was hopefully yeah, just announced the other day. And uh, it's actually from Virginia, which we talked about Virginia's gun laws a little bit in part one of the episode. Yeah. The Virginia Attorney General has announced that starting early next year, the Commonwealth of Virginia will no longer recognize out-of-state concealed handgun permits. Oh, interesting. I hadn't read about that. Yeah. Well, a lot of states do have concealed carry permits or some sort of permitting scheme to allow for concealed mm -hmm. carry of handguns which then states can recognize other states' permits. The problem is that uh, some of the states, it's extremely easy to get these concealed handgun carry permits, and in other states, it's extremely difficult. And Virginia, interestingly, in the past 10 years or so, has become much more liberal. Right. You see a lot more Democrats in control, and I, I think it has a lot to do with uh, younger people moving into mostly northern Virginia. Sure, and commuting to D.C., I imagine, too. Yes, exactly. And so that state is steadily turning more and more blue, although it's still very much a purple state, I think. You know, sure. it's, uh, there's a very big divide between northern and southern. The northern and western part of the state is definitely pretty hard um, red still, whereas the northern part is more blue. Mm -hmm. But still, the attorney general said that because of how lax the other state's laws are, which Virginia doesn't exactly have the most strict laws, <laughs> but uh, we talked about that in part one. But because it's so easy to get concealed carry permits in other states, they are worried about their own citizens' safety. And so the attorney general said that while you are here in our state, you're subject to the Commonwealth's gun laws, not other states. So I think it's starting in February of next year, they'll stop recognizing permits from out of state completely. Wow, interesting. I'm curious to see how that goes for them. 
Yeah. And uh, formerly, Virginia had reciprocity agreements with, I think, 25 other states. So it's a big deal. Yeah. And it is a trend. Uh, It's just one move in a trend of states trying to tighten up gun control laws and not have it so easy to get these permits or getting access to guns so easily by just going to a neighbor state that has uh, more loose gun control laws. You know, so lots of things like this are are starting to happen because uh, Republican-controlled legislatures in various states are not going to be doing anything about gun control anytime soon. Right. And so the states that are more concerned about it are trying to do what they can. Yeah, and I think it shows a big... You know, if states, if a lot of different states can show that they're willing and ready and able to make regulations, perhaps it'll kind of make a more widespread need for change or advocacy. Well, on that note, let's get on with part two of our conversation on gun control. All right. I think there there are a couple of main ones that you see from people who are fans of the second amendment (laughs) and who are opposed to gun control one of which is is kind of going back to thomas jefferson the the idea that if we if we ban guns the only people that are going to have them are criminals right that i think it's interesting that that argument goes all the way back (laughs) to then absolutely (laughs) which uh is not necessarily wait first off Nobody's talking about banning guns. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, even if we did do something like that, we can look at uh, other countries like um, the UK mm-hmm. and Australia and Japan that have either some type of broad sweeping gun ban or their regulation scheme is so rigid and, and strict that yeah. it's basically impossible to get a gun. I mean, that's... That... I Yeah, when I lived in Spain, they have a similar... I don't know exactly their policy, but it was... If it's basically no one has a gun. Okay. Um, and it's, like, impossible to get one. And it was, it was amazing the difference that you feel, um, especially, I don't know, as a woman walking home alone at night and the knowing you know being in a place where you know there aren't any guns versus a place where you know that there are guns um and it was just it was it was really surprising to me how different that felt um as someone just like being how your safety awareness is compared to the two different countries but i didn't know that spain had pretty strict gun laws but okay let's throw that one in the mix (laughs) as well to, to kind of show how that even even if we were talking about some broad banning of guns i mean first off there are so many guns in the united states right, right. now what are people even even if we put a stop to all sales right now there's still millions of guns right so there's no <laughs> lack of them probably because they're going to everyone Virgi- got them from virginia like, everyone got them from virginia 100 100 uh get just go get a gross yeah uh but but anyway the, the idea that a, only a good guy with a gun is going to stop a bad guy with a gun or no well, that, is that what I I'm mean, talking about? No, but I think I that's tied to bit. it, yeah. I think that, yeah, that is tied that's into a, it. That's a but myth that's circulated as well. I, yeah, I think it's tied into it. that We need good guys with guns mm-hmm. because the bad guys have them. Um, but that's, there's almost no evidence to suggest that good guys with guns effectively stop bad guys with guns. Because no. it's really difficult to tell 
who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Well, I mean, and you even hear so many stories about, I mean, you don't hear, we are seeing, right? We're seeing so many stories of even well-trained, ideally, um, officers shooting unarmed citizens, right? Right. Um, using unlawful force and, and essentially killing citizens. Um, and so can you imagine, if you put that, you give that same power to an average citizen that has no training, that has no um, experience, and actually, I mean, what do you think is going to be the outcome there? Yeah. I, I don't remember what it was. It may, it may have been like a 60 Minutes reporter or something. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of like news report that... Yeah. Um, that tackle this idea a little bit <laughs> and so they they had a couple different people who uh were, were com- coming in they were given some gun training and they had different levels of experience you know prior experience yeah. in guns one of whom like had it you know had his own guns and you know went to the range often and then people that like shotguns once in their life you yeah know? and then they so, they so they gave them a little bit of training they talked about mass shootings and you know how would you react and oh yeah. i think i'd react really great so then <laughs> that they would put, be amazing i'd so save then, the day yeah so then they put them in a classroom and they, they have these like fake guns or, yeah or something like that i don't remember what it was right i don't, I don't remember what it was maybe but it's they, like a laser it's like something that shows where or like a pellet gun or something like, yeah yeah something like that like it's not shooting bullets but maybe like pellets i don't remember yeah but they're they're in a classroom and like in the middle of the lecture this guy burst bursts in the door shoots the teacher you know shoots it's right. it's all fake right and uh and and that you know you see how the person reacts invariably like only one of them i think actually got their gun out of their holster before they even <laughs> before they before and like yeah they all got shot by the shooter and um the, the like one person that got their gun out completely missed. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I've been mugged at gunpoint, and I and a lot of people, the rhetoric was very uh, much like, well, you know, if you had been armed, Brienne, <laughs> then you would have been safe. And I, I mean, there's just no way. Like, I, I can't imagine any amount of training would have allowed me when I'm being held at gunpoint to. Just be like, just one second, let me grab something in my pocket, and yeah. I'll take all of you out. <laughs> like, right. Well, I mean, the, the idea that a civilian in a high-stress situation like that Absolutely. can react appropriately and quickly is is really uh, idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no military training. I have no police training. If somebody were to bur- burst down yeah. the door of a, of a crowded room, I don't think I would. I yeah. Most no. people are just going to freeze. That's exactly, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I have no military training. I have shot a gun before, but. I have, you have once before. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like, I think I was in the second grade. So oh. Probably... <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, so the other big argument that um, anti-gun control people put forward is kind of what we talked about earlier with, in, in preventing tyranny. Right. Um, this, this idea that. We need an armed populace to keep a tyrannical government at bay. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's two aspects to that. One, there's this historical idea. That's why we have the Second Amendment. Right. That the early Americans rebelled against the British because of the tyrannical government. And we had to be armed in order to do that. Um, and therefore, that's why we have the Second Amendment. Um, the second part is... is um, I guess 
a more kind of practical concern about modern day government being enormously powerful. Absolutely. Um, so more, more, you know, more practical concern about, yeah. well, what if, what if there was a modern day Hitler in the United States? I mean, and I, I totally, I, I think it's interesting because I do actually kind of, I wouldn't say I agree with that, you know, but I, I, I can get on board kind of with that argument. Yeah. If, if number one, um, the, the military wasn't so well armed that there's like nothing that they, they wanted to kill us all. In. Yeah. Like there's, there's no hope for the average citizen, no matter how many hundreds of, I mean, they have tanks, right. like they could. So, so that's, you know, part of it. But I think too, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, can you imagine, I know that we were talking about this earlier, but people that are protesting, right. If they were armed and had a rally, um, to say, I think I'm thinking of like the Black Lives Matter movement, right, which is protesting police state brutality, state killings of state sanctioned killing of um, of black people. And if their defense was we have the second, I mean, I mean, it would never stand up. Nobody yeah. would ever allow that. Well, I, I read one article on The Washington Post about um, about that talked a little bit about this and uh, was talking about you know trying to clarify some of the anti-gun control beliefs. Um, And one of the things it said is that there has been a a fairly broad backlash against government intrusion um, throughout the country and, and, you know, intrusion into individuals' lives. Yeah. That's true both for right-wing and left-wing oriented people. I I definitely agree with that. And, and so I think, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. Um, I think that's, I think that's legitimate. I don't, I wouldn't say the answer is then to arm myself. No. Um, but he, he, this author or this writer says that that combined with the fa- the fact that there are many people that honestly believe that more guns make us safer, plus the rise of gun laws as an increasingly partisan issue, that all this, you know, all those three factors combined means that there are people that are, are seriously concerned about their safety from a, tyra- a potentially tyrannical government. Like you said, I don't think you... If we had any honestly tyrannical government somehow come into power, I don't think there's anything you could do about it. But right. I, I do, re- yeah, rega- and I, yeah. Regardless, let's say that that was that was the one legitimate argument for um, a right to to personally yeah. bear arms. That doesn't mean you also need the right to carry them. Right. You can have them stored away in in your bunker. <laughs> With, with your year's worth of supply of food um, or, or something else like that. But I think I think what that argument is fundamentally missing is that if you're fighting a tyrannical government, you're still fighting the government. You're fighting the United States of America. Absolutely. The United States of America is the Constitution. You cannot both rebel against the government of the United States of America and claim protection under its Constitution. You're speechless. <laughs> I I don't know about that because, I mean, there are definitely... What if you sue the U.S., right, for a violation of the Constitution? Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's a similar argument of saying you're claiming but protection. Ha- how, how do you sue the United States, Bran? You sue them under laws that let you. Right, but I mean, you're right? suing... Right. Because you can't... Generally, you can't sue the government without permission. Um... I'm completely blanking on on the phrase uh, what for what that means, but you can only sue the government if they say, "Oh yeah, go ahead, sue us," 
and and they're they're like um, section nineteen eighty three allows you to sue government officials. Um, the Federal Torts Claim Act allows you to sue the federal government for tort claims. That law was largely passed because uh, as the postal system started using more and more trucks, they started hitting a lot of people, <laughs> and and the government got tired of giving individual waivers. Oh. Sovereign immunity. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sovereign, the government, has immunity from suit. And unless they have waived that immunity. So, basically it wrong. <laughs> but I'm... I, well, I think the argument still holds true, though. If you're going to... I mean, I don't think that you... I think the Constitution can protect you or provide you protection while you still disagree with what the U.S. is doing. But it's a difference... There's a difference between disagreeing with what the U.S. is doing and actively subverting and attacking the government. I mean, but what if your argument is that the U.S. is no longer following the Constitution, right? So well, I'm it's using... Not in many ways. <laughs> I, well, and it's not. But so I'm using my Second Amendment right to... Over to, I mean, to to attack the U.S. I don't know. Yeah, but no court's going to uphold I'm not saying that, that I would do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just think that it, it doesn't make sense that you can you can rebel against a government and c- claim protection. Yeah, of using, its founding, its, right. uh, using its own founding document. Right, like saying... There, no, I, I mean, I agree. I'm there, just there, playing there devil's other, advocate. Yeah, there are other considerations. There are international treaties about how we treat people in a, in a war um, and, and how you and how a government can treat its own people, right? So that there are other sources of law, I think, that you, you can absolutely claim protection of. But I think if you are actively rebelling against a government, you don't really get to claim that you are working within its own <laughs> uh, Parameters. framework. Anyway, Interesting. Anyway. <laughs> um, so the next one, um, the NRA's famous line that guns don't kill people, people kill people. I think people are starting to get tired of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what to me was a pretty compelling argument is that if you look at uh, attacks on people and the different types of weapons used, whether they're firearms or knives or fists firearms are vastly more deadly and so i actually read a book where people kind of proposed okay let's say let's say we did ban all guns we got rid of all guns but let's assume that that has no effect on criminal activity or violent behavior so every single attack that would have been with a gun still happens but now it's with a knife sure. which is kind of the next or most a different deadly. weapon or whatever yeah and so that they, they then go and look at the mortality rate for knife attacks or for fist attacks. And they're just they're just vastly smaller. So you have less people dying. Right, it would be safer. And generally that's a general. good thing. <laughs> uh, that that's in a book. Um, I'll I'll post a information on oh, about that, that book great. as well. It's it's a really interesting book. It's a bit outdated because it was written in the nineties. Um, and again, you know, data on uh, firearms and gun-related deaths is hard to come by. 
I mean, because, because right. the Congress they, has they banned won't it. let you do it. Um, no, that's very true. I mean, I and I could be wrong again, but uh, my understanding also with regards to that argument, though, is that the U.S. has one of the highest rates of gun violence, right, in like it does. the world, and obviously, I don't think we have worse people. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe we do. I guess we have Donald Trump, but. Well, uh, <laughs> Um, but I mean that then that argument would kind of go into saying that Americans are worse people or they're more violent people, um, right? I mean that's yeah, that's, I hadn't <laughs> thought about it that way, but that's that's actually pretty compelling. That uh, yeah, we don't have more violent people, but we do have more violent weapons yeah, available absolutely. to us. Yeah, I, I, I've seen other charts that kind of show how you know per one hundred thousand people, how many firearm related deaths do you have um and we're, we're way up there um so w- one of the other big things that the nra and other um pro-gun people like to talk about is mental health <sighs> and I-, I think that there's a couple of problems with with that <laughs> argument one is that it, it always rings hollow to me yeah and you talk you know you might talk 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 about oh it's not guns it's mental health but then nothing is actually done to improve mental health services throughout the country i think too i mean that's that's very true and that it does feel very hollow um it's the same people that are saying oh it's mental health but no we don't need more money spent on mental health services or on helping people that are homeless that are experiencing mental health crises etc i think it also is vastly inaccurate i think that Yes. yes, there are obviously yeah. people that have mental health issues that have violent propensities, just like people without mental health issues. But a lot of studies have shown that people that have mental health um, or mental illnesses are much more likely to be victims of crime than they are to be oh, perpetrators yes. of crime. And yes. they're generally nonviolent. Um, I know I, I for our, one of my classes, I did a big study on um, violence and schizophrenia and how a lot of people associate, you know, all these mental health issues or mental health disorders and what we've classified as mental health disorders as being extremely violent. And that's actually really wrong. It's been a huge. um, And so that's for me, that's very problematic, too, is uh, I think a mental health, it's hollow. B, it's inaccurate. And C, it's only used for white people. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like, oh, he this this like white guy had a mental health issue. So it's like that's it's used to justify almost their violent tendencies well i i can't help but think about the the recent colorado springs yeah shooter who um i don't remember his first name but his, his name is deer mm-hmm. um and he went into a planned parenthood and opened yeah. fired and the way he's now being portrayed is as a crazy person yeah and i don't know whether or not he is crazy he certainly sounds crazy right <laughs> saying saying that he's a soldier for the babies yeah i don't know if you saw that i did uh, i did but like i mean that sounds like the kind of thing a crazy person would say but but just because it's radical doesn't mean he actually has a mental health illness or, or disorder or something actually wrong with his brain yeah. he could just be a nutcase that, right that is well and extreme th- in his beliefs exactly and i think that that is so telling given the dichotomy between how coverage of that shooting has happened versus the san bernardino shootings yeah and the focus on those shootings is oh they were very radical they've been conspired like it was very intentional like it couldn't possibly be 
Um, and I and that they had this they were crazy, right? right. Like that's a very different rhetoric. Um, and then with this guy who also I my understanding is that he had been planning this attack for some time. It was that. very well thought that, out and methodical. Enough. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't really that different in the sense of just how it happened, right? Um, and so it's both people or both are in very have very radical, I guess, beliefs, but the coverage of it um, was very different of how they portrayed both yeah. shooter, the shooters. It, I, it'll be interesting to see what information comes to light about the, the couple in San Bernardino because right now it seems like there's still not much information about who they were, why they did what they did, and, and, and all that. But yeah, it's that information that I, I imagine is going to be slow to, to come to light. But all, all this being said, I think that the the last thing I do want to talk about, this is probably the longest episode we've had of Sidebar yeah, so far. I think I need so to eat dinner soon. <laughs> we'll make this uh, short. But I want to talk about some a couple of potential gun control solutions that I don't think are radical. That they seem logical and simple, but we, we've also seen uh, the NRA and other organizations like it completely go nuts when anybody tries to do any kind of gun control so the 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 one that right now is in the news which i i know you you've been reading a little bit about is the uh no fly list loophole yeah absolutely um if you're on a no fly list because you are some kind of known threat or a suspected terrorist that you should not be allowed to purchase a gun i know and i I, yeah i think that Perhaps the the policies behind the no fly list we could debate that in and of itself, but well, let's just for argument's sake presume okay the the no fly list is in general a good thing. We'll we'll put that out there. Yeah, I don't think I can presume that. Um, but <laughs> I like I I'm very I really uh, there's been there have been a lot of uh, I I think the ACLU for one has sued um, about the no-fly list, a number of organizations have brought lawsuits about how it's unconstitutional, it's unfair, it's discriminatory. Oh, yeah. um, and so I think... Okay, well... I'll, I'll, <laughs> I can't I can't say that I'll, I agree. I'll that, give you that. But the, the <laughs> that I, it's a good yeah, thing. But the idea, the, the basic idea is that when we have flagged peop, certain people as dangerous, we shouldn't just allow them to go and buy a gun, at least not without mm-hmm. some kind of a further background check. I, think I yeah, that, I mean, if you take it as that basic <laughs> premise, I think that's pretty straightforward and, I and think one that most people could get behind. Yeah, and I um I for me I can't because I can't get over the no fly list. <laughs> uh, and so I know we we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I I think that I don't believe, you know, personally that there's a an individual right to a first amendment. So it's a it's a murky argument, right? Because if you don't have that right, then who cares if it's applied discriminatorily? Um, sure. But at the same time, I think the other um, the other aspect of it is that, you know, at least as far as I know, I don't think any of the mass shootings that have occurred in the past few decades, none of them have been completed by somebody that's on the no-fly list. So it seems like, for me, it seems like it's kind of this political move on uh, the Obama administration's behalf um, well, that I don't think I, would really make a difference. I, I can't <laughs> completely blame them for that, given... Uh, the few times that the Obama administration has pushed for gun control, they just com- get completely shut down. Yeah, and they but did with this one too, the, unfortunately. The last big push was after the Sandy Hook shooting, 
when um, they were trying to reenact the uh, assault weapons ban. Yeah. And um, I think that's what it was. And it just got completely shut down, even though the the first signs were that there was cooperation with more conservative uh, members of Congress and even with the NRA. And then then there was some backlash from further right-wing people, and it just got shut down. But I, I actually don't even think that assault weapon bans in and of themselves are the greatest idea as far as gun control. I don't see it as being very effective. One, because most gun-related violence is handguns. Mm -hmm. And two, um, I think that there... I've seen plenty of kind of pro-gun people saying, well, an assault gun is just a rifle with a different handle. And I think I think that's that's interesting and compelling to us, to, at le- to an extent at least. But I think the biggest thing is, okay, so you say, okay, this type of weapon is banned. Okay, then you have Smith & Wesson just design a new weapon. Yeah, that's And true. then, you, you know, they can always come up with a new weapon that's designed to shoot lots of bullets really fast so it doesn't really make sense to just keep banning individual types of guns i think there are other other methods um like saying okay you can only buy one gun per month or closing closing the background check loophole um the the gun show loophole um that the you know the idea that you shouldn't be able to just that easily subvert gun control regulations by buying one from a private person and instead of uh, a store. And another is, uh, and this might be the biggest one, is that we really need better data that the CDC was banned back in, I think, the early 90s from funding or doing any type of study that would promote gun control. (laughs) And although that language is is weird and, you know, they, they can't do a study that would promote gun control, nobody really knows what that means. Right. And so they've been hesitant. And heads of the CDC anything. have been been pressured and felt pressured to just don't do anything or we're going to threaten to to defund you under this, this act for, for violating it. Uh, because it's really unclear what exactly that means and, and, and what that has ended up being is that they just don't do any real research and federally funded research is the best way absolutely to, to, find to get real good data on how sure. how we can actually really reduce, reduce gun, gun violence. violence could um and i really think we have to wrap up after but i um is it possible for another organization that's federally funded to do it or is this really in the hands of the cdc i don't think so partially because that's it really is within the realm of the CDC's mm-hmm. prerogatives. I just uh, wonder if, like, the firearms tobacco yeah. committee or something um, was like... I don't know. I, I don't know what the language of the, the ban actually says, if it is specific to the CDC yeah. or, or if it is broad no one federal can do ban. It, sure. Yeah. Um, my guess is the latter, <laughs> but I don't I don't know that for certain. Um, but anyway, the, the last thing I'll wrap up with is which, what you said earlier is that the Supreme Court just refused to hear a case which uh, was it from Illinois where the Illinois co- court effectively upheld a ban on assault weapons as consistent with the Second Amendment and the Supreme Court said okay we don't want to hear that case you did basically it says you did fine and and so that assault weapon ban is going to stay in effect 
and that's the, kind of the first real chip at the Second Amendment in recent years. It's very interesting. And Thomas and Scalia did dissent from denying cert to that case, but yeah, who cares? <laughs> anyway, I think that's probably all that's going to happen. I think we really, today. yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode, everyone. You can find Sidebar online at sidebarthepodcast.wordpress.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can have the next one appear on your smartphone automatically for free. Just subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks for listening.